Turn with me now in your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. I want to read briefly from Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 15. Our sermon passage this morning is the Psalm of the Month, Psalm 69. But before we turn over to Psalm 69, our Psalm of the Month, let's look first at Romans chapter 11. We're going to read verses 1 through 15. Romans 11, 1 through 15. Hear now the word of the Lord. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scriptures say of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace, otherwise work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks. But the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded, just as it is written. God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Amen. Psalm 69 is the third most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Do you know the first two? Most of you good psalm singers should. Psalm 110 and Psalm 2. And they generally appear in the same passages addressing the same issue. Jesus is king. Jesus is priest. But Psalm 69 is different. Not only is it the third most quoted psalm in the New Testament, it appears in a broad and diverse range of places. We didn't do Acts 1. We did do Romans 11. Tom read John 15. If you followed the order of worship this week, you also did John 19. This passage, this psalm is popping up all over the New Testament in all different places. In one place, it refers to Jesus' thirst on the cross. In another place, it refers, Romans 11, to the judgment on unbelieving Israel. In another place, Acts 1, it refers to the judgment on unbelieving Judas. This is a psalm that is layered throughout the theology of the New Testament, pointing us both to salvation and judgment in Jesus Christ. So one thing we can certainly say as we turn back in our Bibles to Psalm 69, there's going to be a lot of Jesus in the verses that are about to come. So turn with me to Psalm 69. Our Psalm of the Month is Psalm 69. 
I am going to read it, 36 verses. Psalm 69, a bit of a lengthy one. Please, please pay close attention as we go together through Psalm 69. Hear again the word of the Lord. To the chief musician set to the lilies, Psalm of David. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully. Though I have stolen nothing, I still must restore it. O God, you know my foolishness and my sins are not hidden from you. Let not those who wait for you, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed because of me. Let not those who seek you be confounded because of me, O God of Israel. Because of your sake, I have borne reproach. Shame has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. Because zeal for your house has eaten me up. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that became my reproach. I also made sackcloth my garment. I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gate speak against me, and I am the song of the drunkards. But as for me, my prayer is to you. O Lord, in the acceptable time, O God, in the multitude of your mercy, hear me in the truth of your salvation. Deliver me out of the mire and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from those who hate me and out of the deep waters. Let not the flood water overflow me, nor let the deep swallow me up. And let not the pit shut its mouth on me. Hear me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. Turn to me according to the multitude of your tender mercies. And do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. Draw near to my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of my enemies. You know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Let their table become a snare before them. And their well-being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so they do not see. And their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their dwelling place be desolate. Let no one live in their tents. For they persecute the ones you have struck. And talk of the grief of those you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity. And let them not come into your righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. And not be written with the righteous. But I am poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set me up on high. I will praise the name of God with a song, and I will magnify Him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or bull, which has horns or hooves. The humble shall see this and be glad. And you who seek God, your heart shall live. For the Lord hears the poor and does not despise His prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise Him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it. Also, 
the descendants of his servants shall inherit it. And those who love his name shall dwell in it. Amen. And amen. Our first three years of marriage were difficult. Not because of the marriage. We enjoyed each other very much. But because we were in difficult circumstances. I was full-time at the seminary. I was full-time at work trying to earn a living. We were averaging a kid a year for three years while we were in seminary, working full-time. Routinely, I would go to bed around midnight, wake up around 4 or 4.30. Routinely, Lydia would find me passed out on the floor of the living room or dining room, exhausted. I had literally just laid down on the floor and went to sleep. I was drinking about a pot and a half of coffee a day. I gained 30 pounds. I was getting A's in all my classes. But I was drowning. I was completely drowning. Financially, we were in debt from undergrad. People were leaving food on our front porch and checks, or not checks, cash in envelopes. They knew we were drowning. They knew we needed help. And they were rising up to help us, to get us through what we couldn't get through ourselves. When it came to finances, we were drowning. When it came to scheduling, we were drowning. When it came to energy and will, we were drowning. I couldn't get out of seminary fast enough. Sorry, seminary. They were not my three best years. And yet, it is striking to me to look back and to realize how much help we had along the way. The bills got paid, the debts got paid, the kids got fed, we got fed, and I graduated. (laughs) God is good. And there was something stark and powerful looking back on that story and realizing how important it was to go through that. Because being a preacher of the gospel and a pastor to a congregation is more than knowing the theology that you need. It's more than knowing how to open a Bible passage and make a sermon out of it. It's more than taking the time and showing up and praying for you and spending time with you. It's actually knowing experientially in your own soul and in your own experience that Jesus understands. He understands what you're going through. He understands your suffering. He understands your pain. And he sympathizes with you. And that's why he gave you Psalm 69. That's why we have this psalm as the psalm of this month. That we could spend a month learning to sing with Jesus. Learning to pray with Jesus. Because so many of you... Know what it's like to drown. You see in verse 1, David says, waters have come up to my neck. He knows what it's like to drown. He knows what it's like to have so many problems around him that it feels like a sea through which he cannot swim. And all the problems and all the trials and all the struggles have reached the neck. He's breathing, but that's about it. There's nothing else. He says that he is in a mire where he cannot find a firm foothold. He's like the one who walks out across the sandy beach into the waves. And very slowly the water rises from foot to ankle to calf to knee. And then all at once, without warning, the water goes from knee to neck. And you've walked off the edge of the shelf. And you're in over your head. He knows what that is like to be into deep waters. And to feel the rush of the waves going over his head. He knows what it's like to cry himself into exhaustion. To heave and to sob and to sigh. Until he can't do it anymore because of physical exhaustion. He knows what it's like to have thoughts and feelings surging within him. But his throat is dry. There are no words. He knows what it's like to stare at the horizon looking for some glimmer of hope. 
to look at the heavens looking for some sign of love and to go blind, seeing nothing. He knows what it's like to drown in despair. But this is not unique to David and he knows it. Out of that experience of drowning, David writes this psalm and hands it to the chief musician and says, the Christians are going to need this. David is not alone. It's his psalm, but he hands it to the chief musician so that the choir can sing it with him. So that the church, 3,000 years in the future, could come and sit in these pews and say, yeah, me too, I'm drowning. The water has reached my neck. My feet can find nothing on which to stand. I've been treading water, and my arms are tired. And I'm ready to go under. I'm sick of crying. I'm sick of silence. And I'm sick of waiting for God. I just want him to show up. I'm drowning. He hands it to us to sing because he knows that we will go through it. But he also hands it to us through the choir master. It is a psalm that is according to the lilies. Which might refer to the tops of the columns of the temple that Solomon built. Which were carved in lilies. But probably not because this comes from David. It could refer to the name of the capital of the Persian Empire, Susa, which means lilies. But probably not, because it comes from David. In fact, the only reference that makes any sense at all is those lush, gorgeous meadows in which David would have sat grazing sheep that were full of lilies in the spring. The timing of the psalm is perfect, isn't it? It is a psalm for the springtime of the year. It is a psalm for those sheep like you and me who are hungry, who are thirsty, who are hurting, and who desperately need a pasture full of lilies. And David says, here you go. Here's a psalm in which your soul can find rest. Here's a psalm that is a pasture Full of lilies. It begins by facing our problems head on. By understanding that when we use language like, man, I'm underwater this week. When we use language like, I'm submerged, I'm just trying to come up for air. When we say things about the busyness of our lives, when we say things about the hardships of our lives like, I'm drowning, we mean them metaphorically. They're a figure of speech that represent real, concrete problems that we need to face and address. David's problems were threefold. First, he had enemies who were mighty, who were many, and who were dreadfully unjust. In verse 4, he recounts these three facts about his enemies. That they hate him without cause. And though he stole nothing, he must return it. They are unjust enemies. They don't play by the rules. But they are also more than the hairs of his head. And they are mighty and strong. David faces external pressure that he cannot possibly deal with. And I know that it's generally our experience in America that we don't face enemies or we don't think of them as enemies. I certainly would remind you that you do have many enemies. Satan and all his demons, the world and all the worldly ones who would seduce you and tempt you and deceive you. I would also remind you that there is the experience of having many problems that are too mighty for you and are frankly unfair to be on your plate in the first place. We know the weight of external pressure. So many of us know what it's like to drown in a world where there's too much on us. Too many, too mighty, and too unfair. Secondly, David faces the problem of internal sin and shame. Oh God, you know my foolishness, my sins are not hidden from you. He adds to this in verse 6, Let those who wait on you not be ashamed, and let those who seek you not be confounded because of me. 
See, David is struggling with the reality that just as he has enemies who sin against him, who hurt him, who burden him, so he sins against others. In his foolishness and in his sin, he has confused others and he has shamed others. He has hurt them. He has wounded them. And now they are confused and now they are wounded and now they are ashamed. He has external pressure. He has internal guilt. But then thirdly, he is alone in this problem. Verse 7, for your sake I have borne reproach. Shame has covered my face and I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. When David says he is drowning, what he means is sin has made me an alien and a stranger from all humanity. My enemies have sinned against me and I have sinned against others. And I am now trapped in this sea of broken relationships. I am living in this community that is so utterly corrupt. There's no peace. There's no grace. Do you know this feeling? Do you know this sensation? To say, I'm drowning. Where everything I touch, I ruin. Where everything I say gets misunderstood. Where everything I attempt to do is misinterpreted. Where my relationships are hanging by a thread. And all the demands that are made upon me are exhausting me, stretching me, and burdening me. I'm drowning. This is what David is experiencing. I'm drowning in sin. And in sin-soaked relationships that aren't working. This should also sound familiar to you because these are the words that are applied to our Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus had enemies who hated him. They were more than the hairs of his head. He quoted that line in John 15. You see, Jesus became a stranger to his brothers and an alien to his mother, who together said he's lost his mind and attempted to arrest him and commit him to an insane asylum. He was truly estranged from his own family. He came, according to John chapter 1, to his own, and his own did not receive him. And you might say to me, but pastor, he didn't have any foolishness and he didn't have any sin. That verse doesn't apply to him. Yeah, you're right. When Jesus sings Psalm 69 verse 5, he says, Lord, you know my foolishness, I don't have any. You know my sin, I don't have any. When we sing it with David, David and we sing it as a confession of sin. But when Jesus sings it, he sings it as a confession of your sin which he bears on your behalf. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, we have to face the reality clearly. If we're going to get out of this sea of drowning, if we're going to survive this experience of drowning, we are going to have to embrace the truth. It is the sin of others. It is our own sin that is heaped up and destroyed our communities and our relationships. And Jesus himself experienced that firsthand. He understands what it's like to have enemies. He understands what it's like to have too many things and he can't do it all. He understands what it's like to be overwhelmed and to be exhausted. He sympathizes. But David then gives us three reasons why these things happen. Beginning in verse 9, zeal for your house has eaten me up. David loves worship. David loves the Sabbath day. And boy is that painful. Have you ever considered that one of the chief problems Christians in Boston have is that you're expected to work seven days a week? And if you take today off, you're expected to perform the same amount of work everyone else is performing in fewer days. And that's why a lot of us are exhausted and stressed. We have zeal for the house. We have a willingness to worship. And boy, there's a cost to be paid for it. There's a penalty in keeping the Lord's day holy and in worshiping God. 
But even in this, it's not just going through the motions. In verse 9, it says, The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. The second reason David is having problems is because he not only loves the worship of God, the house of God, he loves God himself. Those who hate God hate David. The reproaches of those who reproach God, who rebuke God, who disbelieve God, rebuke and disbelieve David. But then thirdly, in verses 10 and 11, not only does he love worship, not only does he love God, he loves others. I wept, I fasted, I wore sackcloth. This is the Hebrew practice of grieving and of mourning. He took to himself the experience of others' sorrows and of others' sins. And in this way, it should sound familiar. It is precisely what our Savior did. You see, when he made a whip and drove the money changers out of the temple, he quoted verse 9, Zeal for your house consumes me. And what is more, when Paul speaks in Romans 15 of what Jesus suffered for your salvation, he quotes verse 9, The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on him, on Christ. And so too, in John chapter 11, when Jesus stands at the grave and sees the sorrow and the grief, and he hears the cries of his beloved people, John 11.35, quotes verse 10. Jesus wept. Your Savior understands. He knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to be thirsty. He knows what it's like to be lonely. He knows what it's like to be abandoned and forsaken. He knows what it's like to be a joke and a tease and a laughingstock. He knows what it's like to become a byword to the world around him. He knows what it's like to have those who sit in the gate, those with authority and with power to speak against him, to have scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees, the Sanhedrin to come together for the good of the church to instead condemn him and seek to destroy him. He knows what it's like to be the song of drunkards, to be mocked and ridiculed and taunted by his own people. He can sympathize with you. He understands what it's like to drown in a humanity without love. He knows what it's like to drown in a world without relief and sorrow without peace. He knows what it's like to love and to love and to love and only to get hate in return. He loved worship. He loved his father and he loved humanity. And we killed him for it. He knows what it's like to drown. And so, what do we do? What do we do with this? When we've entered into this very deep and dark place where we feel the weight of sin and sorrow in a gripping and poetic way, what do we do with it? Verse 13, but as for me, my prayer is to you. As we said in our family worship this last week, after 69 psalms, you would think we would get it. What is the first best response to drowning? Pray. We pray. When we have enemies weighing upon us, sins shaming us within, when we have friends and family who won't come near to us, when we are alone, drowning in the weight of all of our grief, We pray. Why do we pray? Well, first, David prays for himself, illustrating why we pray. His prayer for himself in verses 13 through 18 is connected directly to his theology. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, in the acceptable time, in the multitude of your mercy. In these two prepositional phrases, David highlights two features of God's character that are essential for moving us out of self-pity into prayer, out of genuine grief and sorrow into prayer. One, God is acceptable time. This phrase points us to the sovereignty of God, that He's in charge, that He's in control, that if you're drowning, it's His water. 
And then if you're gasping for oxygen, it's his to give. The reality is, my friends, he has an acceptable time in which to save you. This appears in verse 14, deliver me. It appears, sorry, in verse 13, hear me in the truth of your salvation. David knows and acknowledges that it is God who is sovereign. He will save you in his good time. We want relief and we want it now. We want it immediate and we want it urgent. But it's his timing. The truth is he does save. He will save. But you've got to wait for him. You've got to let him be God. You've got to let him decide. He'll save you when he's good and ready. And it will be a glorious and great salvation. There is truth. He saves. But he's not your plaything. That he should come at your beck and call. He is the most high God. And when you pray, you learn to wait. You learn to say, in your good time, Father, in your good time. Do you not know that your Jesus would have loved to not spend three days in the grave? Do you not know that your Jesus would have loved to not spend three hours on the cross? And yet, by the night of Gethsemane, he had learned to pray, not my will, your will be done. He had learned to pray with David, in your acceptable time, God, when you're good and ready, come save me. I believe you save. Out of this belief that God has the power to save, the sovereignty to save, David throws out this series of verbs. Deliver me from the mire, let me not sink. Deliver me from the haters, let them not overflow me. Let not the deep swallow, let not the pit shut its mouth. David prays for the sovereignty of God to be expressed in his complete and total salvation. He's not content to merely have relief. He wants resurrection. He's not content to have this momentary pain pass. He wants eternal life. He's not here praying, Lord, get me through today. He's praying, Lord, get me into glory. Lord, don't just simply get me through earth, but get me into heaven. He's praying for a total experience of salvation. Far beyond our little prayers that we so often pray. But then secondly, he prays according to God's love. Oh God, in the multitude of your mercy. He believes in the mercy of God. This is expressed in verses 16 through 18. Hear me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness, which is good. Not only is God sovereign and all-powerful, able to save, God is loving and good and kind and willing to save. So to this principle, David adds these verbs. Turn to me. Do not hide from me. Hear me. Draw near to me. Redeem and deliver me. In these verbs, David is not focusing on the strength of God expressed in salvation. He is focusing on the presence of God expressed in proximity. Oh God, come near to me. Oh God, show me your face. Look me in the eye. Oh God, give me a hug. Oh God, listen to me. Bend the ear in. David understands that a salvation without God is not worth having. His aim and his goal is not to simply get out of the problem. His aim and his goal is to get into fellowship with God. As the great Puritan once observed, if Christ is not in heaven, send me to hell. I don't want an eternity of riches and happiness if it means an eternity without Christ. For there are no riches and happiness apart from Christ. This is what prayer does. This is why we begin with prayer. It moves us out of this sea of problems in which we're drowning into the vast expanse of the power and love of God. Prayer positions our lives before God and shows us Him and shows us who He is and shows us what He can do. This is made plain in verses 19 through 21 where David advances his prayer by returning to the original vision. Father, you know my reproach, my shame, my dishonor, my adversaries. 
In this way, David swiftly sums up the total of his problem. I have sin, and it has caused shame. I have enemies, and they have overborne me, and I am drowning. Internally and externally, I am inescapably drowning. But then in verse 20, he recounts the effect of this suffering. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness, literally heavy-heartedness. My heart is broken and my heart is weighed down. He's drowning. He's succumbing to the waves. David cannot stay afloat. I looked for pity. There was none. I looked for comfort. There was none. In this he recounts the alienation and the loneliness. They gave me gall for my food, for my thirst, vinegar to drink. Not only was there no comfort, not only was there no pity, there was poison and there was vinegar. They added salt to my wound. They worsened my condition. They weakened me further. This verse, of course, takes us to John chapter 19, where Jesus says, I thirst. And they give him vinegar to drink. You see, your Jesus understands. He knows what it's like to be broken by your reproach. Do you know how he knows what it's like to suffer sin and shame? He suffered yours for you. Do you know how he knows what it's like to be under the knife of his enemies and inescapably at their power? He submitted to them. He had a myriad of angels he could have called down and he didn't do it. He put his hands in the shackles and he went with them. And according to John chapter 19, the only reason Jesus said from the cross, I thirst, was to fulfill this scripture. That's what John says. In order to fulfill Psalm 69. In order to show you his sympathy. In order to show you how far he'll go because he loves you. In order to show you that he thirsts like you. That he suffers like you. That he knows the weight of sin and misery like you. He said from the cross, I thirst, bring the vinegar. What no soul would ever dare say, I'm at the end of my rope, come torture me. Jesus said, to show you how deeply he loves you and how closely he understands your suffering. David, having prayed for himself, having laid out the problem clearly before God, having set his life in order before God, here they are, God. Here's the reproach. Here's the sin. Here's the shame. Here's the enemies. Deal with it. He now turns and prays about his enemies, 22 through 28. These verses are hard for us to pray. These verses are hard for us to sing. They're they're uncomfortable. We don't enjoy them. But David uses them, and so does the New Testament. We can't skip them. David points first to a series of metaphors that illustrate his imprecation. Here is the kind of curse I want God to bring down on my enemies. First, let their table and well-being be a snare and a trap. Second, let their eyes and loins be darkened and shaken. Third, let their dwelling place and tents be desolate and empty. Fourth, let them be blotted out of the book of the living, not written with the righteous. Each of these four illustrations or figurative speech point to the security and strength of his enemies. By their table and well-being, he means their employment, the means by which they feed themselves. Lord, let them be trapped in their prosperity. Let them be snared by their success. Let them be unable to humble themselves and repent because they are enjoying this earthly life too much. In a way, he's actually praying, let them have what they want. They want success. 
They want prosperity. And he's saying, go ahead, let them have it. Don't show them the truth that this thing is destroying them. Secondly, he prays, let their eyes be darkened and their loins shake continually. By this, he prays for their physical well-being. Let them continue to see as they wish to see. That in pretending that there is no God, let them at last come to the decision that there is no God. Let them have blindness and their loins shake continually. Let their strength ebb away that they cannot stand up or rise up. Let their dwelling place be empty and desolate, their tents abandoned. Let them be a people who no longer dwell on earth. Let them be emptied out and disappear. And then lastly, but most disturbingly for us, verse 28, let them be blotted out of the book of the living, not written among the righteous. By this metaphor, David refers not to the doctrine of election, which Paul hasn't taught Israel yet. That comes in Romans 11. It's anachronistic to use this as election. What is more, David isn't going to pray under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that someone who's elect becomes unelect. That's just silliness. This refers to life or church membership. Remove them from the congregation. Remove them from the role of church membership. Remove them from Israel. And these are the two exact New Testament applications of these imprecations we find in the New Testament. Judas, who is removed from the office of apostle, and another took his place. Acts chapter 1. And Israel as a nation who was removed from being the covenant community in Romans 11 so that the Gentiles could be grafted in. In both places, the judgment of God falls as a removal from a covenant relationship with God. This is what David is praying. David, keep my enemies from that which I seek, this loving fellowship with you. This is what David is praying He knows what it's like to suffer. To suffer to the point to say, take them out of fellowship with you. Let your, notice these verbs, indignation be upon them. Let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their iniquity be added to, and do not let them come into your righteousness. He is praying for their separation from the love of God. He is praying for their entrance into the full wrath and justice of God. Why? Verse 26. For they persecute the ones you have struck and talk of grief of those you have wounded. Friends, do you see? This isn't about you and your enemies. This isn't about people who annoy you. This isn't about people who cut you off in the street in the traffic. This is about those who hate Jesus. This is about those who want to crucify Christ again and again and again. Who rejoice in his shame. Who rejoice in his punishment. But it need not be this way for us. David's prayer moves to higher ground beginning in verse 29. I am poor and sorrowful. Let salvation set me on high. Notice the acknowledgement in the prayer. I am poor and sorrowful. I am unable to save. I am helpless and hopeless. Notice also that salvation is treated as a person. Let salvation, that is Jesus, set me on high. May Jesus exalt me. In this prayer, David has woven his way through desperation, through pain and through suffering, right into the presence of God in order to pray with God so that salvation, that is Jesus, would set him up on high. And there he says, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. David says, I will start the worship service. We will come and we will sing and we will praise. And the reason for this is, verse 31, it will please the Lord better than the ox or the bull with horns or with hooves. This is a strange comparison. 
God clearly commanded the singing of praise. But he also clearly commanded the offering of animal sacrifice. So why is it that David says the singing of praise is superior to animal sacrifice? Beginning in verse 32. The humble hear and are glad. Those who seek you, their hearts live. They discover that the Lord hears the poor and does not despise his prisoners. Friends, do you see? The singing of praise as a response to this deliverance from drowning is important. Because it teaches other fellow drowners how to float. We come to this place on the Lord's day to sing Psalm 69. Because that's how someone who has drowned, like David, teaches us to swim. He calls us into prayer so that we, the humble, can be glad. So that we who seek God can have lives that live and hearts that live. So that we can learn from David that the Lord hears the poor and does not despise his prisoners. He has a love and a compassion and a power to save. So that worship spreads and erupts. That heaven and earth and the seas and everything that moves should praise him. That we should recover faith and believe that even in the drowning, there is salvation for Zion. There are cities that are built in Judah. There are those who dwell and possess it, descendants who love his name, and they dwell there. They're not washed away in the flood. They are not submerged beneath the deluge. They dwell there on the mountaintop of God where the floods cannot reach them, where the love of his name holds them fast in worship and fellowship. This is my great burden for us today to realize about Psalm 69. You see, friends, what does a drowning person need? A swimmer. A strong swimmer. I remember in high school, my Bible teacher said, you've heard famous preachers say, You were drowning at sea, and God tossed you a life preserver in Christ. You have only to reach out and grab it. My Bible teacher said, oh, it's not true. You're a rotting, fish-eating corpse at the bottom of the ocean, and he swam to the bottom, breathed life, and you floated you to the top and took your place. Amen. My friends, we are all drowning. I am drowning, and you are drowning. We're drowning in our own sin. We're drowning in the sins of this world. We're drowning in sorrows too many for us, too mighty for us. Sorrows beyond our capacity. But there is a love. But there is a love that holds us fast. It's a love that is first and foremost in Christ, so first and foremost pray. But don't pray alone. One Friday morning, when I was in seminary, I was drowning. Drowning in all those things I mentioned. Sleep deprivation, poverty, hunger. All the demands on me from children, from work, from preparing for ministry. Friday morning at the seminary is prayer groups. A few minutes before prayer time, I went to the computer I brought up an email. And the young seminarian who was barely treading water was hurled a heavy wet log that put him under. Sin, according to that email, was ripping through my extended family and destroying my brother's lives. And I went under. I sobbed uncontrollably right at the computer. I heard the bell, and I couldn't go. I sat fixed in my seat. I heard them begin to sing the opening psalm, and I still couldn't go. I heard Jerry O'Neill get up in his laconic Kansas voice, make the announcements, and I still couldn't go. I thought to myself, I will hide here, and I will pray, and I will weep, and I will be safe. Not knowing that one of the prayer groups met in that room. 
In walks Rick Gamble. And all at once, tears of intense sorrow were replaced with tears of intense shame. I was found skipping prayer meeting. My head was down, my shoulders were shaking. Dr. Gamble walked over, threw his hands on my shoulders and said, we'll pray for you, come pray with us. Don't pray alone. Please don't pray alone when you're drowning. What drowning souls need is a hand, a hand to hold, to hold in prayer. You have one in Christ, and you have one in Christians. This is what Psalm 69 teaches us to do, to stick a hand out of the water and to say, somebody grab me. One of the favorite pastors that I've learned to follow once made the observation, some of the most important words you can ever say to a fellow believer are these. Let's pray. Friends, Jesus understands. He sympathizes with you in your suffering. Sing with him. Friends, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for this beautiful psalm. I thank you, Father, for so much sunshine and blue sky with such a dark and painful subject. And Father, so many of us have felt the waves on our chins and have felt the waves over our heads. So many of us have been under the sea. And so many of us need the grip of our Savior. Father, hold us fast. Show us through this psalm, sung, read, preached, prayed, that Jesus has a firm grip on us. And like Peter in the Sea of Galilee, we won't go under. We are safe. And Father, we pray, I pray, that you would make us a praying people who have prayer partners and are faithful to use them, who have family worship and who are faithful to pray together, who have midweeks and are faithful to gather to pray. Father, make us a praying people that we might have hands to hold when we go under. Father, we give you thanks for this great gospel and ask that you would write it upon our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.